Hello, welcome to the Curator Podcast. This is episode 29. Hi, hello, welcome once again, dear listener, to the Curator Podcast. I am your host, Mark Fraser, and this is episode number 29. I want to keep the preamble short on this episode because this episode is, is a milestone episode, I guess you could say. On this episode, I have a legendary punk rock wise man, I guess. A man who needs very little introduction. His name is Ian Mackay, and he is the guest on this episode. There's not really a lot to say about Ian McKay. If if you listen to this podcast regularly and you like a lot of the artists on it, then the chances are that you know who Ian McKay is and in that sense, he doesn't need an introduction to you. If you don't, however, then one, that's quite silly. And two, he's responsible for Discord Records and with Minor Threat, Fugazi, responsible for a lot of, well, pretty much all hardcore music, I guess you could say. He's, he's, he's a inspiring figure, he's an awesome figure. I don't mean awesome in, you know, the, 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 the parochial sense of, oh, that's cool. I mean awesome as in his intellect, his talent, and what he's achieved inspires awe. And it's inspired awe in me and multiple other people. Pretty much everyone I've spoken to on this podcast is influenced by him, including myself. And to talk to him was an extreme honour and an extreme privilege. I make no bones about this fact. He didn't have to speak to me. But he did, and he was very kind, very gracious, and just a staggeringly intelligent man. I conducted this interview over Skype, so towards the end, the, the quality kind of cuts out a little bit, because my mic kind of messed up, uh, so it kind of switches over to his mic, so towards the end, you'll notice a little bit of a quality drop on my voice, but it's fine. You can still hear me, and that's the main thing. also want to thank my friend Todd Jordan for producing this interview for me. His podcast is called The Bitter End and it's just a new podcast but it's really good. You should check it out. But yeah, all thanks to him for editing and producing the interview. I really appreciate his help and him taking the time to do that for me. It means a lot. So yeah, I'm going to open up now with In My Eyes by Minor Threat and I hope you enjoy this interview. <laughs>
Ian Mackay, you are, you are Ian Mackay. Which is, that's correct, Scottish. Uh, in my head, that's that's a huge fucking thing. Um, how are you doing? I'm good. You know that the first time Fugazi came to Scotland, which is the first time I ever went to Scotland, uh, we were on stage, and I said to the crowd, "How do you pronounce my name?" And they said, "Ian Mackay." And I was so happy because I grew up being called McKay. That's, you know, most people here say McKay in America, but it was always Mackay. So I was very, I felt like I'm fucking home. My family came from, my family came from uh, the Mackay clan from way up north, um, up near yeah. um, Stranraer, up that way. near. And there's a little town called Betty Hill, the very, on the north coast. And uh, we, my father and I went up there and it was incredible to see in, like entire cemeteries filled with Mackays, you know, very interesting. One thing is my grandfather actually added the E um, to the end of the name. <laughs> Part of that had to do with um, trying to get people to say Mackay yeah. and get away from the Irish Mackay. <clears throat> but also he was a newspaper writer and he just thought it looked – his byline looked better, looked more balanced with the E on the end of it. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned that the the newspaper thing because uh, I was I was looking I was doing some research on you because I do research on all my guests and you were talking about I seen you talking about um, I think it was at the Library of Congress you were talking about how your mother used to um, collect letters and stuff like that um, yeah I mean my mother was a true a true journalist in the sense that she actually um, kept journals from age six until she died in two thousand four I mean wow. you know some years you know there's I mean, she had five kids, so there were some years that she wasn't writing as much as others, but she kept documentation for the entire time. So if it wasn't her own actual journal writing, she would keep copies of letters she wrote to people, you know, or maybe just clippings or things or just, you know, just jot down little notes, um, even her calendars and stuff. So when she died, she left us um, four organized filing cabinets filled with papers. 
um, and you know tens of thousands of pages of, of journal entries. Fascinating, really interesting. She's a brilliant writer. She was great, and um, so she really was the one that impressed upon me. I think the the idea that if you write it down, you don't have to remember it, which I yeah. thought was a nice thing to think about. And I did keep I kept journals pretty steadily for about maybe ten or twelve years, and then I kind of. And then I just got I lost a plot on it. I every once in a while I'll start a little, I'll write a little, but I don't keep regular journals anymore. So you you don't write so much these days. Then you're kind of more focused on on the music, I guess. Well, I suppose lyric writing lyric writing as as writing itself. I do that as well. Um, so I guess as, what I wanted to ask really was as writing. I guess writing's quite part of your family. Then you sort of it's always been around. Yeah, I, mean, I would say that. I mean, it's funny you should say I write a lot of lyrics. I'm actually I'm I'm painfully slow with my lyrics these days. But I come from I mean, there's no question that I come from a family of writers. My, you know, my mother, <clears throat> my mother's father was a sports writer for a newspaper, and her mother was an English teacher. My mother wrote for magazines, and she, as I said, kept journals and was an incredible correspondent with hundreds of people. She also. Uh, she and my father wrote a book about the school they went to, um, where they met. They met at a school called Sidwell Friends, which actually now is where the Obama children go to school. Um, that's here in Washington. My father's father was also – he was a, a magazine writer and a, um, a true crime writer in the 20s. Um, he was part of the um, um, propaganda machine in, during the war. Uh, he, he was in London working for the OSS. Um, and my grandmother on my father's side was a fairly successful mystery writer, um, sort of along the Agatha Christie vein in the twenties and thirties. And then she went on to write for a magazine for many years. Um, and my father was a newspaper man. He worked, you know, and he's, he was a writer. So my family, everyone has been like my oldest sister is a poet and my next oldest sister is a linguist and everyone we've words have been really serious for us. So I don't know if it's so much writing, but it's really it's about words. And I think we do put a lot of, in our family, a lot of emphasis into words and the order in which you arrange them. Um, and in turn to writing, you know, in some way, I suspect that my ability to write has actually been somewhat hampered almost by the fact that my parents were such prolific and excellent writers, you know, because um, I used to, you know, just feel like a little inferior, frankly. Now, when you you know you read something to your dad and he's like, ah, it's good, you know. He he might say that's an idea that's been thought of before, but it's good. And you're like, oh god, you know, you just want <laughs> you kind of want to have something a little more, you know, you want someone like a real cheerleader. And I suspect that one of the reasons that I got into music was really because I um it was a discipline that was outside of my family. Like nobody in my family were musicians. I you know there's nobody. And my mom could read, she could read sheet music and play the piano but she couldn't write and she didn't you know that wasn't and she wasn't really a musician she's and my dad also was not you know my dad you know sings in his church but he's not he can he understands like how to sing he can read music but he actually can't even really hit the notes he just <laughs> he has a he has a like um, an intellectual relationship with music whereas i'm like for me music was very much a um it just came to me or supernaturally it just became something that was so obvious and um undeniable for me uh and and in a way i feel like it was a discipline that was outside of the purview of my parents you know i could engage with expression and words without having to 
sort of fall under their like their understanding of how it works. So it's I think very much a anyway. Yes, the answer is the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Well, obviously, music is is the reason how what what has brought me to talk to you. Um, and one of the things that this podcast deals with is creativity and passion. Um, and you have you obviously have both, which is great. Um, but some of the things you were saying there, like it's interesting because obviously punk in itself is, is it starts off about it still is about rebellion, and from a very early age you you realise that without even realising that if that makes sense. Like it was about about getting away from the like you say the purview of your parents. Well, I grew up. I think I grew up at a time here in the states, and I think it was somewhat international where social convention there's, you know, there's a, there was a revolution really a cultural revolution going on in the 60s um so as a young child growing up in washington dc i was you know i was surrounded by you know tumult there was mm-hmm. obviously the civil rights movement was you know in full you know there's a, a lot of action in that world there was you know, the sex, sex, you know, sexual liberation, and there was women's rights, and of course the anti-war movement, which was, you know, so central at that time. You know, I mean, every day you heard about Vietnam or you heard about the people protesting against it. And because I was involved, my parents were involved with a very radical left church, um, an Episcopalian church that was really involved with protest and sort of countercultural life. I was exposed to that very early on. And I really, you know, what I think I came away from uh, and through that, through that experience was really, you know, don't trust the government and question authority. That just seemed so obvious to me. Going yeah. into the seventies, um, you know, when things sort of, you know, the Vietnam war came to an end and, and yet this, the United States went into a kind of a strange mindset um like a very strange mood i couldn't see the the rebellion i couldn't figure out where the counterculture was because the only evidence of it that i could find at least when i was in high school junior high and end high school really were just people that were you know basically just self-destructing you know either using you know just drinking or using drugs which never made sense to me because i felt like you know if you are actually challenging the status quo, um, you're kind of doing them a favor by neutralizing yourself, by just taking yourself out of the game. Uh, it never made sense to me to, for people to just, you know, abuse substances as a form of rebellion. Uh, to me, it seems like actually the opposite of rebellion. And um, I was very confused about it as, as a t- as young teenager, like what, where was the rebellion? Where was the where was this underground? And it wasn't really until I really engaged with punk and studied, like heard of me. I'd argued about it and kind of knew about it and had a derisive opinion of it. But then at some point I actually listened to music and started to like get this idea where I started to realize that there was this incredible, like um, sort of ocean of music and thinking that I had, was unaware of. It'd be as if you were, you know, if you were, <clears throat> you know, walking around in a shopping mall trying to find, you know, something somewhere to 
to swim and then you find an entrance to a cave and you find this incredible underground lake, you know, perfect, you know, like, <laughs> you know, a perfect spring. Uh, that's where it was, punk was like for me. And then when I, when, and then when I finally saw band, the first you know, band I saw was the Cramps and that was in February of 79. And that was, that really just, that was it. Like I knew that's what I was going to be doing. And, um, it was a very, it was really profound for me. It's interesting to me. I, you know, I don't think of. I understand that punk people often think of punk as, you know, you know, the idea of it being always being rebellious. But I feel like really, what punk for me is is free is just it's like the area of like. It's like free thinking, like you know, like it's like a free yeah, space, yeah, a yeah. free space, and I think that free spaces just by their nature are rebellious because they break out from the status quo or from the sort of the arrangement that we we've allowed like our grids to um be developed in like we we enter you know in society that's very things are very structured so anytime you 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 know i guess you know when you choose to wear a different color for instance then you're really breaking. You're breaking with the masses, and so that to me. But that's also just that's just freedom of thought, and I feel like that's really what I think of punk as a free space. And in some ways, of course, to be free is rebellious in a society. But, other, but I think that sometimes the word when you say rebellious, it just people think that just means to be sort of to agitate or to to be nihilistic or to be. Um, self-destructive or to be whatever it is but i think that that rebellious is a word that <clears throat> is a little more nuanced than most people realize i, I totally agree with that um I, now from my, my experience of, of growing up and listening to punk rock music is that it's always kind of for me it's always kind of straddled that free nature with just outward displays of like violence and i've never really felt comfortable with that i guess as someone who's a pacifist i never really felt as, as though that I could identify with that aspect of it. But on the other hand, I find the music itself can often sound quite violent, which which I'm quite attracted to in a sense. So it's like a weird juxtaposition almost of liking the release, but not but not the physical manifestation of it in anything other than the music or what you see on stage, if that, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah, it makes sense, sure. I mean, I think that <clears throat> it's a point of entry. I think that, like, I actually think punk rock is... It's just a link in a, a very long chain. So I think that punk is folk, is jazz, is hip hop, is rock, is blues. I think all these things in their original manifestation were all had their own sense of release. And also, I think we're you know the birth of all these things was attended by a lot of by violence too, because it was it was something that really I think people were threatened by. I mean, I also identify as a pacifist, but I have to say that I did a lot of fighting. Which was, you know, it's a paradox, but it was a reality for me. And I remember actually, you know, in the very early on, like just, you know, initially feeling, you know, very um, maligned by sort of people on the streets or people, you know, and like other high school kids who would, you know, there's other like these other high schools that would, you know, you you know they chase you down the street or they jump you because you look weird or or whatever, you know. And then you had this weird situation where the media had been so derisive about punk so that all their all of their sort of depiction to punk always involved super violent nihilistic you know 
sadomasochist kind of people um, saying that's what punk was and which of course was offensive to those of us who didn't who weren't those things um, and it was problematic because it gave society society thought oh well, that's what these people are and we hate them for that but and even maybe more more serious problem was that people who were actually sort of nihilistic and violent um, and sadomasochistic or whatever thought, oh, I must be a punk. And they started coming to shows. So the what was initially sort of a circling of the wagons to sort of defend ourselves against external forces, suddenly I think that the violence moved into the shows where people who were coming to the shows were actually behaving in a way that was unacceptable. So, you, yeah. you know, it's sort of, the, you know, society thinks that we were all, you know, punching the crap out of each other um, at gigs because that's the way the media has just depicted it. But then what happens is that people who have seen it and think, oh, that's what I want to do, they come to gigs and start punching everybody. So then we all of a sudden we find ourselves – like the the like the it, the fighting kind of moved indoors, and at some point it just became. I I realized like this is insane. Like this is a. I mean, I had in my mind I had had this philosophy of bruising the ego and not the body, um, yeah. which I think is ultimately a conceit. I I really trusted myself to not send people to hospital, but I also was not scared of people and wouldn't back down, um, or if I knew that I was, you know, I mean, I knew how to run too, but, um, mm -hmm. but at some point, even if that, even if I could have lived by that philosophy and it was, and I don't, and I don't think it necessarily was, I don't think it was sustainable. It didn't, that was just me and other people certainly, other people and friends of mine certainly were not following that philosophy. You know, they were doing damage and it became clear that, you know, the, that, you know, violence begets violence. And I thought, I'm going to step out. I'm, and you know, it was 1984. I thought, I'm just not, I'm done. I'm not going to fight anymore. And I, I mean, I said, I just was so clear because I realized like, I'm a pacifist. And what am I doing? Um, but the point being is that it was the birth of something new. And, you know, with birth comes friction. And that's part of, that's just part of something new. So your, your relationship with it, like your, you, maybe your point of entry is a little bit different and, the violence, I think a lot of the violence that people think about in punk rock now is sort of almost ritualized sort of behavior. Because I don't really think there's, there's not really an enemy at this point, you know, if, even if there was one when I was, you know, early on. But the music itself, it is, there is a release, there is, it is aggressive. And there is a, you know, it, it's, it, it's, you know, these are, I the idea I think is to feel free to express things um, passionately and serious. One of the things I was wondering, um, because the whole threat of violence was was always was always there, is that was that something that you often thought about before or even during like minor threat shows that were you always kind of just waiting for it to kick off, like sometimes. Oh, uh, minor threat was interesting because with minor threat, like there was there were there was one tour where I think every night there were I mean it just there was always a fight and quite often people would attack me on stage. I mean, I, I remember this, we did a show in Dallas, Texas, and this guy jumped on stage and ripped my shirt off. And this would be the third like time on that tour already where someone had jumped on stage and ripped my shirt off. And I was so furious about it. And I chased the guy into the crowd 
and I grabbed him and I ripped his shirt off. And then I dropped down on my knees and tried to tear his pants in half if I could. Just to, <laughs> and at that very moment, the police raided the. They came running in to the venue. It was like a it was like a hall, like a like a Knights of Columbus hall or something. And I remember the police came running in, and then they walk in. There's like a guy, two shirtless guys, and one guy is like trying to rip the pants off the other guy. And they're like, "What is going?" On? <laughs> but yeah, that was that was just. But the, I had to say that tour. There was like, you know people. I mean, at that time, people were kind of gunning for me. I think there was a lot of my rep, like the reputation of the band or had sort of preceded us and. People were very confused. They thought that we were like advocates of a straight edge movement, which we were not. But they, in their mind, thought we were. So there was people there who wanted to fight me because they thought I was trying to be a, a fascist fundamentalist or something. So I, yeah, there was definitely a lot of fighting. I mean, really, the, the the much more troubling violence was during Fugazi. Because when Fugazi started playing, it was an era where the shows were much larger and there was a much more established, like there's these skinhead gangs, especially, yeah. you know, all around the States just ran into like, you know, there are different gangs in different areas. And you know, our shows were cheap. You know, they were low ticket prices, you know, the famously $5 shows. And one part about, you know, that one aspect of having a low ticket price is that anybody can come in. And, you know, if you have a high ticket price, you know, people who are not really into the music aren't going to bother um, so the skinhead kids didn't really, I don't think they gave a damn about Fugazi. What they gave a damn about was that they had an audience and they had a, a target. Like, you know, so they, there was a, you know, it was a mass gathering and they could put on a display and their display was usually just beating the shit out of people. Um, so, you know, there were definitely times where like we did a show in Orlando. No, where was it? Oh, this um, thing of a show, was well, that's a different one, but this is a show in Denver, where Denver, Colorado, and during the opening band, there was these skinhead guys there, and they were just beating the crap out of people, and, the, and you know the show had to be stopped, and the skinhead guys were like smashing the windows out of the building, and then you know finally, you know, like we were getting ready to go on, and I, you know, I really had to think about, right, like how am I, how are we going to do this, like you know I'm generally the person who speaks, you know, mostly to the crowd. So how are we, you know, what am I going to say? Like, how do we, it was a little bit, you know, it's unnerving sometimes to go on a stage knowing that people are going to get it. People very well may get injured. Um, and it wasn't only skinhead violence. Sometimes it's just overcrowding or sometimes it's just like, you know, this unbelievable amount of stage diving. Most injuries that came like serious injuries that occurred at Fugazi shows were suffered by people not who jumped off a stage, but people who got jumped on by somebody jumping off a stage. And those are you know, very serious neck injuries. I don't know the actual figures, but I, I think probably a half a dozen people may have lost the ability to walk because they came to see us play. That's a terrible feeling, you know, it's a terrible feeling. Yeah. So there were definitely times where, like, I don't have stage fright. I'm not, I never have stage fright, but I've definitely had moments before we go on a stage where I think, all right, like, this is, a potentially very dangerous situation and how are we going to do this how are we going to navigate it uh, that seems to me like the whole overcrowding thing uh, the bands that the punk bands that i like now like that would never really happen to them because people don't really identify with it as much as they used to um but one thing i was kind of wondering is just to go back a little bit when you're talking about when you first seen the cramps do you still get that feeling 
when you listen to punk music now? Is that still something that you get? Of course. I I don't I, I'm not I my musical tastes are, have always been wide ranging. Um so for instance, last night I I looked at a, a guitar player named Roy Buchanan playing Hey Joe at the Austin City Limits of a video. He did this in the seventies and it, it is a staggering performance. But this morning, you know, I I listened to Eddie Current Suppression Ring from Australia, which is one of my favorite bands. And I listened to like a Miles Davis um, sort of later, like late 60s, early 70s, sort of his acid funk jazz era. Um, and then a band called Spirit Caravan uh, that was, it's like a stoner doom band. And I, I just, yeah. I, music always, like the kind of music I listen to almost always inspires me and sets me off. And, and I tell people that the music that the genre that I'm addicted to is, is music made by people who don't have a choice in the matter. Um, and I don't know if, you know, I, I believe that when I, these bands I listen to that I really, that I really like, I think this person is just has a direct line. Like they're just, they have to make this music and they're hardwired for it. Um, I'm sure there's some in some cases that that's me more than them. It's me thinking that than more than they are. But honestly, I, most of them are there. I feel like I'm kind of on like someone like a Vic Chestnut, you know, or a Nina Simone, Jimi Hendrix, um, you know, the Bad Brains. These are bands like they only like you know these people just have to make they have to do what they do have to do what they do and that that's what i'm interested in i'm not really interested in like music as performance in a way like as a like a costume like i don't i don't i don't really respond to people who are shapeshifters i mean i don't think they're wrong i just think i just i don't respond to it so i'm not like people who kind of jump genres or or kind of chase like kind of figure out what people would like or i don't know if they just sort of kind of dilly around in different forms because they can that's less interesting to me what i'm interested in is people who just have to play and the music they play quite often is not at first really understandable but with a little investment becomes crystal clear i think that i think that's totally true obviously all humans seek connection and when you I think when you become attuned to a specific kind of music from a from a young age then you start to see that connection or feel that connection in a way that a perhaps more mainstream or popular music or artists that are you know like shapeshifters they just don't really have that same quality which is not to say they make bad music but I think you're totally right like there's there's something there which you can sense almost and almost like a ethereal kind of thing yeah yeah I mean, I don't, and I don't, and I'm, I, I'm careful to not, I'm careful to not say that that other stuff is not valid or not legitimate. I'm merely saying that for me, that's what I'm interested in. That's, that's what I'm looking for. If I would listen to Fela Kuti or James Brown or the Beatles for that matter, I mean, something is going on there. Like those people are making, Absolutely. they're making music that is just, really, it's unbelievable that they could, I mean, we're essentially talking about, you know, wires strung on pieces of wood. You know, we're talking about, yeah. you know, 
plastic, you know, skin stretched out on uh, other pieces of wood and and through these strange assortment of objects, people are able to combine like these sounds, can manipulate them and combine them in a way that transports us. That's pretty miraculous. You spent, I mean, you spent a long time documenting that uh, throughout the whole the whole of Discord. You've been obviously documenting music, which gives you that feeling in your gut, that connection to somebody else's human experience, which we can never really, we can never experience objectively, you know? Um, I was just kind of wondering then, like over the years, d- do you think that the music that you've loved and that you continue to love, is that like a maybe, I always see it, the longer I've been doing this podcast for, I've always kind of seen it as a reflection of an obsession with just something like music or art in general, I guess. And yeah, the question was, the question really was, do you, would you say you're obsessed with, with music or were you obsessed with art, which is kind of different or makes you feel something? Huh. I don't think, I guess obsessed is not the word. I wouldn't, I guess I think of it, maybe it's just a semantic thing, but obsessed sort of, to me, obsessed suggests it's out of balance. Like when someone's obsessed with something, they're not, like they're putting so much energy into that one thing that other aspects of their lives are not being attended to. Um, So it's not a word I would probably use, but I would say that I breathe it. You know, it's definitely part of my, I mean, I don't think a day goes by where I don't think about music on some level. Um, I know that. There's no question about that. And it's a currency that um, I think of music as a currency in a way that I that we trade. I mean, and uh, it connects us. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. I don't know. It just became – you know, I didn't go to college because I knew I just knew what I was going to do. I was going to be in a punk band. Yeah, and I don't. I've never looked back. I don't. You know, I, don't have any, I always just think. I always have. I just wake up every day with something to do that I want to do. Do you ever reflect on how important the legacy you've created like has been to people all over the world? No, I don't. I don't reflect upon it. I mean, I'm aware of. I'm aware of the fact that. Um, that I, you know, that we've been working for a long time, and the label, the you know, label will be 35 years old in December. I'm aware of the fact that, you know, I'm sitting here at Discord House right now. This is, I think, perhaps is the only still existing punk house, like that actually from the original house. You know, this is, you know, I moved in, I moved to this house in October 1st, 1981. I don't live here now, but I still, I own it, and I still work out here. Um, I understand, you know, I'm aware of the fact that I have, you know, I've kept all sorts of stuff. I have, you know, 35 years of correspondence and thousands of flyers and thousands and thousands of recordings and photos. So I have this sort of this archive that, but that was, it was just naturally occurring. Like I wasn't, I didn't think I, I wasn't trying to like snap everything up. I just, I just did the work and didn't throw it away. Um, so while I can't say that I reflect upon the importance of anything, I am aware of the fact that I have this evidence um, of a, I think, a very significant cultural moment um, in the United States and England and other parts, other 
countries. Um, and I do have a sense of responsibility, a custodial responsibility, not only to uh, the archives since they exist. I think that would be useful for other people. But also, I have a cultural responsibility. I have a custodial responsibility um, for the label because you know I lived an unusual life, and part of the reason I've been able to do that is because you know hundreds of people have entrusted this label with their music. You know, we didn't. You know, we never used a single contract with any of these bands, um, and yet we've been steadily pressing and you know selling these records. And paying royalties, you know, for three decades now, over three decades. So that's an unusual relationship. And I think when things were very, like there was a period of time in the 90s where we were selling so many records, it was pretty amazing. Um, and that was, that, you know, we were, you know, there was a lot of money. It was very, you know, it was easy to keep going. Things are certainly quieter now. We sell far fewer records. Um, and I guess this is where the custodial responsibility really kicks in. Now, like I feel like I have to, I really owe it to these people that as long as there, you know, there are people, um, if there's an interest in hearing this music, and specifically in owning vinyl or a CD or whatever of of this music, um, then I feel like I have a responsibility to make it available because they've 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 trusted me to look after it. Uh, so yeah, I do have that sense of responsibility, but in terms of reflecting on the importance of the work, I, I just don't really, it's just not my way. I don't, I just don't think about stuff like that. I don't celebrate anniversaries and I don't, I don't really, it just doesn't matter. I just do the work that's in front of me. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
noticed when I was doing some research on you is a lot of people who've who've interviewed you always talk about always talk about like the punk and hardcore scene, the stuff that Discord do in the past tense. To me, it's not past tense because I still I still am part of it and and the city that I live in. Does that ever get on your nerves that people talk about it as if it's past when it's clearly still ongoing? Obviously, obviously you just said you're you're still an active member of making sure that like it exists where you are. Do you know what I mean? Um, I, I don't. I don't really care what people say, so I don't. I don't. I don't worry about that. I think that I. I. It seems to me very clear that the label is slow, you know really becoming more of a historical label. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're not still putting out, you know, tons of records. We put out a few things and occasionally a new thing, but it's not. I think the label really was started to document a scene, something that was happening. Most record labels, I think, they lead with the idea that they're a record label. So then they put out a record for a band as a way to sort of generate interest in the band. I think our approach is really that the we're aware of a band that is generating a lot of excitement or, and there's like a, something happening, like there's a, a scene around that band and then we we want to document it. So it, it's a bit of a different approach. Um, like we're not trying to generate excitement. We're trying to, we're trying to document it. And um, I mean, obviously it, you know, if you, once you document the excitement, then it tends to add to the mix, but mostly we're not, we're not trying to promote things as much as we're trying to document them. And in Washington, at the you know, in the last few years, seems we're really quiet. There's some good bands, but there's not. I can't say the bands are. Um, there aren't bands that are really generating a tremendous amount of excitement. So, you know, and I think they can be. I say there's some really they're good bands, but you know, for whatever reason, it's just things are not like things are not coalescing in a way that um you have that sort of up sense that things are like growing they just sort of like they already seem very static and so we don't put out a lot of records at the moment uh new records but you know as i said you know it's a custodial responsibility so the label is definitely active but mostly what we're active with is is taking care of the catalog and that's I you know I think that's completely legitimate and I I'm sure there's some people who I mean let's put it this way when I was in you know Meyer Threat people sort of rude the fact that they preferred the Teen Idols the band I was in before that like the, that era and then when I was in Embrace people in Fugazi people really wished I was still in Meyer Threat and they talked about Meyer Threat and and then when I was you know when Amy and I were playing in the events people wish i was talk about fugazi i don't you know who cares i just you know i mean i appreciate that people are interested in the label there's so you know i think people it's their point of entry where they come in and how they perceive things i remember on our last one of our last the last time we were in england fugazi that is this guy came to a show and he came to me afterwards and he said he said um i was really kind of struck by how many songs you guys sing on? And I said, uh, I don't understand. He said, well, just I, I thought you were more of an instrumental band. And I, and I thought, I was like, well, how, how can that? I was trying to figure out what he was talking about. And it finally became clear that his only relationship with Fugazi 
was the soundtrack record to the instrument movie. He had never heard any of the other stuff. He didn't. He just picked up the record randomly and enjoyed it, and then decided he would just come. He would uh, come see the band. He had no idea about the, this. You know, this is nineteen. Uh, this is two thousand and. I guess 2002 or somewhere around there. Or maybe it was 99 because right when the instrument soundtrack came out maybe. But anyway, it was really – it was very interesting for me to think about this idea that like, it was like a proof that people's relationship with the band or the label is so tied to where – like what their point of entry is, where they are with it. And um, so people can think what they want. You know, I don't – I don't – I actually don't ever hear people talk about discord in the past tense. And they did. I wouldn't care because I don't. I'm not doing it for them or their estimation. Like I'm doing it because it has. That's the work that has to get done. That's. I think that's the only, the only sensible way to look at it. Because you could drive yourself mad. You could go crazy. Otherwise, if you keep thinking about that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you have to make one has to decide whether they are. Like, if their shape is one that they decide, or if it's a shape that. Like the facets of the shape is just what other people's opinions are. Like who you are is based on other <clears throat> other people or yourself, and you have to make that decision. Do you often find that's one of the things that's? I guess that's the main thing that's driven your life. Then it's just it's all about just being true to what I believe in and fuck everyone else, which is pure punk rock. Yes, not not to a detrimental sense. It's obviously, people you care about and, and and life life that that goes on that you want to be part of, but it's less less about caring what people think of of you and what you do um i mean not quite so harsh i do you know i think my general motto is that i care but i don't give a fuck so it's like yeah. you know i do care like i love people i'm you know i think i'm a pretty friendly person and i'm i do care about people but if somebody has a problem with me i just don't give a fuck i don't care i can't it just it's not it's just it's just it's like it's just bad. It's just bad. Like, what's the point of like what? What's the point of putting bad energy into into? You can't use like good energy to fix bad energy. If it's bad energy, just let it be. It'll it'll sort itself out. I mean, I've been you know over the years have been subject to some fairly you know ugly comments and behaviors, but I just think I'm not going to engage with them because I don't see the point. There's no point in it. I'd rather I'd much rather spend my energy making something than trying to. Um, reconstruct something that people are trying to destroy. It just seems ridiculous. Uh, I can I can speak for myself in saying that when I was setting up this interview and, and getting ready for it, like I was I was I'm still I'm pretty nervous. People often tell me that they're they're nervous to speak with me, and I I understand it. You know, like the there's you know the the power the relation like the power that you've sort of attributed to me or the things that you should to me really has more to do with your relationship with the music and your, you know, like how, and you know, people, a lot of times when they meet me, it's an unusual situation because they have a very deep relationship with maybe my name or my image or my voice, but they've actually never met me. And when they meet me, they don't have anything to say to me because the dialogue is all inside of them. Yeah. You know, and, I'm very used to it and I don't and, – and I also understand it. And people often will thank me for my music and I was always uncomfortable accepting those thanks because it just seemed weird to, you know, to be thanked all the time for your music. But I realized that you know, what I could – what I was comfortable with was saying that on behalf of music, I could accept their thanks. 
you know, but I do feel like, you know, I've, yeah. and I've said this before that, you know, music kicked my ass and I only intended to return that favor. Um, <laughs> and that's, I understand, so I understand where they're coming from. You know, I'm, I'm not particularly nervous about meeting people. I don't really think I've ever, really, I don't, this is not part of who I am really. I just don't, um, but I certainly have been, like, I remember early on, like with say, for instance, like the cramps, like, you know, I mean, the first, that first show I went to, I, I remember I went to the bathroom and I was taking a pee in a urinal and I looked over and the drummer, Nick Knox was in the next urinal next to me, um, taking a piss. And I'm, I knew who he was cause I had seen maybe the first set, maybe they played two sets, but I knew who he was exactly. You know, I knew precisely who he was. I knew how, you know, it just didn't make any sense that he was in a bathroom, like with the same bathroom as me, certainly. I mean, I having ever only ever seen large bands and like arenas and stuff. Um, and I realized how completely I was stunned, you know, and terrified. I get yeah. it. You know, I understand that it was just the power of the, that, that power of that moment was really profound for me. Cause it was sort of, you know, the one hand, you know, I was, I was faced with somebody who had had like this immense impact on me, um, but in a way that left me speechless. I mean, first of all, you don't generally talk to strangers at urinals anyway. Yeah. But what about, and, you know, and you might talk to a friend, but what about somebody who you know, but you've never met? It's just an interesting, and it's an interesting setting. Um, so I'm, I'm familiar with that kind of, that kind of, that feeling. And I think a lot of times people, it's interesting because I, I've done so many interviews and I don't think in my interviews I'm ever like, it's not like I'm known for being mean in my interviews or, you know, I don't like belittle the interviewers. I, you know, I don't, I mean, I know other people who are much more famous for taking out, you know, going after the interviewers, like someone like you yeah. know John Rotten or somebody who, you know, he could you know, on a bad, just depending on who you get, you know, what day you interview them. Um, but so it's funny because quite often people say, I was, I'm really, I was really nervous to speak with you. But I'm like, but why? And I think well, that's because that's the power of music. That's why. You, you reminded me of what my friend always says. And it's like, it doesn't matter who they are. Everybody wipes their ass. And it's like, well, yeah, that's that's totally it. Like yeah. everybody's just, everybody's just, a, just a person. And they're no different from you really, you know. I guess unless they can afford to have somebody else wipe it for them. <laughs> I'd like to. I don't know if I want to meet that person. I don't think I'd get on with that person particularly yeah. well. <laughs> I'm sure one exists. <laughs> That's a depressing thought, isn't it? Oh yeah. God. <laughs> I guess babies um, don't wipe their own asses. Babies and infirm people. Well, yeah. But, but we, we I think I found a. I, I think I found a flaw. I think I found a flaw in your friend's concept. <laughs> no one's perfect, Dean. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I was I was wanted to ask you. I've got a couple of questions that um, my friend, that some of my friends have wanted me to ask you. So I guess I'll ask them if you if you if you're okay to do that. Sure. Um, one thing I wanted to kind of well, I'll, I'll start with this one. I think um, one of my pals is a huge fan of both Minor Threat and Fugazi. Obviously, um, he was he was wondering about. He says punk. He, he thinks punk rock's always been like a youth driven movement. And you wanted to know if you agreed with that that idea, and if you think that punk was a valid subculture 
if it has to be truly driven by a certain energy of youth? Um, I think that there's the young idea. I do think that the young idea is kind of part of punk. Um, I, I think that the reason that youth excel at punk is because quite often their relationship with music or with society hasn't been kind of beaten out. It hasn't been beaten out of them by either formal structure or formal teaching or just um, people becoming kind of um, jaundiced in a way. Uh, what I love about, like what I love about punk stuff, especially like with young people that they're like, coming to terms with their instruments um having you know they usually don't have not been like usually not trained and just learning how to play themselves and teaching themselves how to play and then in their minds having this sense like maybe they're listening to some kind of music or a particular band and they're trying to emulate that band in their mind they're playing like just like this other band but their relationship with their instrument is so different than the people who are in the aforementioned band so what's coming out of them is sounds really nothing like it but a lot of times it's something totally unique i mean there's a band for instance there's a band on discord called void from the you know they're from the early 80s and i think in their minds they were just playing kind of hard rock kind of metal kind of stuff but they were such crazy players that the music they made was completely unique and that I love. I love seeing people coming to their instruments or coming to like learning, sort of like learning on the job in a way. That I really like. Usually what happens after that is that people's relationship with their instruments or their bands or the business becomes – they start trying to – it becomes sort of careerist. And that becomes much less interesting to me. So I think that your friend's – theory is somewhat correct because I think kids haven't really had a chance to kids aren't really thinking about careers. And I think the careers are what usually get in the way of the new idea. Like that's, you know, they're because the, it's, you know, you don't, I guess there's not really, an, there's not really an, an audience for new ideas because it hasn't been, they haven't been thought of yet. Yeah. So um, I'm interested in, I always like the new idea. So the, but having said that, you know, now I'm 53, and I, you know, I still will see musicians who are even who are older than me that though they don't identify necessarily as punk, but in my mind that they, you know, it's the same. It's kind of the same thing. They're just like the the point for them is not the career. It's the it's the unattainable goal, like the thing that they're going after. And that's what's so that's what's so engaging for me to see people reaching for something that's always out just a little out of reach. You know, they can't 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 quite get there, but it's in the flailings that uh, such amazing moments can occur. One question somebody was wanting me to ask you, and, and you've mentioned music as a career, so I think it's a good way to sort of see into it. Is um, I think now with the advent of the internet and and, and the way that music has been. And distributed and, and is out there just now. Do you think there's actually more kids that are now thinking of it as a valid career to try and be a musician when really there's so much like you need to do so much to even contemplate having a career in music and 
I think a lot of people kind of go out and and, and, they, and they, they seek that. They seek to be a musician or be a pop star as a career option. Um, do you think do you think that's something that's maybe the question is, I guess, do you think the internet has changed the way or has destroyed is the question? Do you think the internet has destroyed the music industry? And is that a problem? Um, you asked me two different or three different questions there. So, I'm kind of, so what is your first question? The first question is, do I think it's a, do I see kids today being, thinking of music as a valid career? Is that the first question? Yeah. It's funny you should say that. I actually, there was a period of time in the mid nineties where people would say to me, they started asking me for advice about how they could pay their rent when they go on tour. And I mean, my answer would be like, write a good song. I don't know what the, you know, it's not like you don't just get it because you, you don't just get paid because you go on tour. You actually, you get paid because people want to see your band and people want to see your band because you've done something that they're interested in. So there was this weird moment where I think early on punks never thought about like, how are they going to make money? They just were going to go, they just wanted to go play. And so they, everyone worked shitty jobs and saved and then went on tour. Um, there was some point in time where people were like, well, I want to go on tour, but also I need to make, I need to make money to do that. Right. Then go get a job. I don't know what to say. Um, so there was that shift. Then in the, around the turn of the century, turn of the century, there was this really, I just started to notice a proliferation of advertisements on television and magazines that featured sort of, I guess what would be called indie rockers, you know, like car companies showing that you can get your guitar and your amp in the back of their car or, you know, a liquor ad where, you know, people are just having their jamming in their basement or something. And so, so interesting that they've kind of seized upon this sort of imagery um, as a way to sort of give some street credibility to their products. But I think that advertising informs people. And I think there is, there was a point where people are like, Oh yeah, that's like, I could be a lawyer or I could be, you know, a cop or I could be a real estate agent or I could be a musician. Um, and I suppose that's true. If, you know, if you want to, if you're prepared as a musician, as a job, if you're prepared to play exactly what people want to hear, because that's the only way I can think of. If you're gonna be if it's a service industry, then that's true. That's the way you're approaching it. But that's not how I think about music. Um, so I don't think of it. As a, I don't think of you know. I work. People say, well, you, that's easy for you to say because you live off your music. But I actually live off my fucking work. I work all the time. I'm not playing music right now. I'm talking to you. Yeah. And I'm gonna when I get done with this, I got more work to do all day. I you know I, I have record label. Um, you know, the times that we toured, I, you know, I booked the bands, I manage the bands. You know, we do work. We do work so we can basically be free when we play. And, um, so it's very difficult for me. I think that there's, there's the sense that, you know, music, music, like banders, like that's a career choice, but I guess so, but only if people like you. And I don't really, that's just not how I think about it. So I still don't. It took me a long time to say, like, I'm a musician because it's just not – it just seems so insane to say that because it just seems – I don't even know what that means, really. And But the truth is, I guess I'm a musician. Um, 
What was the second part of your question? The second part was, um, it was kind of, that, I think the whole attitude has kind of been born out of this whole internet culture which we live in. Yeah. And obviously that's changed the music quite a lot. So that the other question was, has the internet destroyed the music industry? And if so, is that a problem? Well, two thoughts. One is, I think the internet has created a situation. This is not, and this is not actually limited to music. There is a kind of a, it seems to me there's a lot of what I would refer to as insertional economics going on where people are trying to figure, they're seeing that money is going from one place to another and they're trying to create jobs or kind of create, figure out ways to insert themselves between the, those two points. Um, hence an enormous amount of consulting groups and like people have jobs like I'm consulting on how best to handle your social media or, you know, just people, it's like all these weird jobs that people have, they're all based on the internet um, on so, or some computer thing uh, to some degree. And I, it's very interesting to me. And it seems like a house of cards ultimately because people aren't doing anything. It's not lost on me, by the way, that, you know, when people spend all day and often all the night working on their computer, um, they might put in eight to 10 hours of work. And then if they look up from the computer, nothing in the room has moved. And I think there has to be a, a mass psychological effect on the, you know, as, as will result from this. You know, if you were, if I was to give you a sponge and a bucket and told you to start working and eight hours later, you looked up, you'd have a clean goddamn room. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. if I gave you a rake and put you in a yard, it'd be, it'd be leaf free. <laughs> um, but with a computer, you could sit all day with you know, your brain completely hard at work, but nothing moves. And I'm not. This is not. I'm not a luddite, and I'm not saying it's bad. It's just something to think about. Um, and I think that the, something like being in a band—that's kind of like people like they come to like, yeah, I think I'll be in a band or whatever. But it's kind of like they don't really want to. They don't know what to do with themselves. People don't know what what work they can do, and they think, well, maybe I'll web designer, or maybe I'll be a musician, or maybe I'll be both. I don't, you know, I don't know. It's very strange. In terms of the internet destroying the music industry, yeah, it, it certainly has done some damage. I, I, you know, I think that it's changed the way. It's actually less about the streaming and downloading. For me, it, that has been less of an impact than the. Um, it's like it's, it's it's scattered everybody's brains. It's like, you know, people. You know, I think now people can listen to, you know, a million songs and, you know, all at once, basically. They can listen to, you know, they can listen to, and they end up listening to three seconds of something. And that, that really has affected, affected music in a way that, I think my experience with music was always that, you know, you get a record and you really spend time with it. And part of the reason was it was an economic thing. You spent like, you know, whatever, it's 12 bucks on a record. So you're not going to, you can afford two. So you bought one and you take it home, you listen to it for, you know, a week straight. Um, but now since I can virtually listen to anything for free, um, I tend to not be able to focus on any one thing. I, you know, it's a little bit like if I go to a hotel and they have cable television. I don't have cable television because I just, I just don't want to get into all that fucking mess. Um, but, but one of the things is like when I was a kid, 
there was four channels basically or five channels on the television. And I watched a lot of television. Like I, you know, and you always, because you just watch whatever was on. But when I go to hotels, there's like, you know, 900 channels. And I can't watch anything. I can't, it's just, I get distracted. I always think there must be something else I could be watching. And I think that there's a parallel in terms of music that people, they're just not going to sit down with a record when they can listen to like 50 or 50 different pieces of music. They always think there must be something else that I could be listening to. Um, and I think that's, that has a real, has had a real effect. Now, all these things, like that's just the landscape. And, you know, there was a, a period of a hundred years where the record industry really had a monopoly on the way people were engaging with recorded music. But prior to that, hundred years, you know, prior to that, that century of monopolization on the record labels, you know, there was thousands of years where people just had to make music and go out and play it and, because that's what they did. There was no way to buy music or to hear it unless you were in the room with the people or if you could reach you know, music and play it yourself. Um, so I, you know, since I think, well, I know music was here before the music industry and I know music was here before the internet. Um, and since I believe Music is a form of communication that predates language. I'm not worried about it. It's going to find its way. Music always, I mean, music always wins. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't worry about it either. Um, I, the only thing that I have noticed personally is um, as this is as the culture, as the, the landscape has changed, I do see the price of actually bringing bands to town has went up because less people are coming to shows because less people are spending time doing what we love doing and that's spending time with you know long periods of time with records that we love yeah. and th that's the part that really depresses me about it is that's, a, really, that's a very good point another aspect of that which is also I think a result of I think you're right that fewer people are going out to shows because they're on their computers but another thing that's I think a result of the internet which has been really problematic this is I just talked to a couple of different bands European bands that came to the states and it's become like the you know partially has to do with the fact of you know the inc increased security surrounding i guess per terrorist perception of or perceived terrorist threats but getting into this country has become extremely more difficult and much more expensive um to, you know to the tomb where it might cost bands you know three four five thousand pounds just for visas so right there, yeah. it's going to eliminate. It's going to eliminate um, a certain level of band because they just can't afford to come over. Um, and I think that's true in the other direction too. I think there's, I think that, and the, what's happened with, I think the reason the internet's played a role in that is that I think that the um, the governments, like the immigration people, are all looking for ways. Everybody's looking for ways to make money, and the government's looking for ways to try to to make more money. And the internet has allowed them to really kind of um, be able to monitor what's going on. So let's just say, for instance, like historically, like if bands would come into the states, we would tell them, "Don't come with a visa. Just come with your guitars and tell them you're you're recording, and we'll get you a letter from a studio um, saying, yeah, these dates are on.' And that would work fine." But now, if a band, if people arrive, let's say I, you know, I'm 
coming into a country. Let's say you fly over to the States and you have a guitar and the customs person says, or the immigration person says, what are you doing here? And you say like, oh, I'm, I'm recording this studio. I'm going to have a session. And you say, that's nice. And then that, then he or she would type your name into a search engine and it would produce the name of your band. And then he would type in the, he or she would type in the name of your band and it would produce the dates of the tour. And this has really made it impossible for bands to get into the country. So the, so the internet has done something that's really, um, it's insidious in a way in terms of pricing, making things too expensive um, and too prohibitively like, stringent. I mean, punk can't play by the rules, and this is a real problem. I mean, England was the first, really. Like, coming into England from the continent was really problematic. I remember once coming in in the 90s, and the people in the booth actually had copies of the music papers. They had like Enemy and Melody Maker, and they would just look in the back to see if you had any ads, like for your tour, um, which is a sort of very analog version of now, where they just type in, they just type into a search engine and bang, they got you. Um, so this is this had a really interesting like how how do you fly under the radar if the radar is vertical? Yeah, I don't know. I'm thinking about it. I find that like I've I've been playing in bands since I was 16 and I'm, th I'm 30 this year and um, I find it inconceivable that any band that I'm in will ever play in America because the the point of entry is just so obscene it's obscenely high exactly I can, I can never imagine it happening and, and that to me that is a tragedy but but you know what it's not over yet so we'll see wow. There's nothing else really to say. There's nothing that can follow that, really. I don't think that was Ian McKay. I'm so grateful. I'm so thankful that he's he took the time to talk to me and helped me battle through some technical issues as well. So I hope you enjoyed that. It was a long interview, but worth every single goddamn minute. I think it was beautiful. He's he's a, he's he's just an amazing guy, and his intellect, his his intelligence, his 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 knowledge is just far beyond anything else I've ever experienced in punk rock and it's just it's amazing to speak to him the guy's just a legend a genius if you will thank you very much for listening I really appreciate you listening to this podcast I've got some big news coming up soon um, but if you could pop on over to iTunes and give me a rating and review and if you want to talk to me please just get me on Twitter or Facebook or send me an email even all these things are cool I love talking to you you're awesome you listen, so you're, you're obviously awesome. I think you're awesome. Even if you don't think you're awesome, I think you're awesome. So keep being awesome, I guess, is what I'm saying. I'm going to play you out now with a song by Ian McKay's latest musical venture called The Evens, which is him and his wife. Now, uh, in the middle of the interview, there is a Fugazi song. I was trying to kind of try to cover, you know, all the musical bases. There is a lot of musical bases, but the biggest musical bases in Ian McKay's life are, are kind of the most prevalent. And the Evens is his most recent thing, and they're really, really good. Have you ever heard them before? They're kind of lo-fi punk. They're kind of two-piece, take a lot of influences from other kinds of music other than punk. And as you can tell from the interview that you just listened to, Mackay likes more than punk. Which, so, don't we all? We all do, don't we? Anyway, this song is from the first Evens album, and I really like this song. This is one of the first Evens songs I heard a few years ago, actually, and I think it's dead good. It's called Shelter 2, and I, I hope you enjoy it. I really enjoy it, and I hope you enjoyed my company, because I certainly enjoyed yours. Until next time, thank you for listening. 
बाय